after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has also born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Phildash, Jildash and Bethuel, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Tema, Gama, Gam, Tahash, and Makkah. I almost didn't make it through that. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I was reading this morning updates on a friend of mine who is a minister, was a minister in this presbytery, whose uh, son, who is in his 20s, has suddenly gotten an autoimmune disease that attacks his nerves and has functionally left his son paralyzed. They don't know if the body's going to correct itself. He can't eat. He can't swallow at times. He can't feel anything. He can't move. 
And as I have been watching my friend's response as his son is going through this awful trial, one of the things that has stood out to me is how often we take for granted the way a true believer responds to trials and the ways that unbelievers often respond to trials. One of the stark contrasts is that my friend is trusting the Lord through this affliction. While there is not much hope, while his son does not seem to be getting better, and it is undetermined when and if his son is going to get better, my friend is writing things like, we are grateful for the faithfulness of the Lord. We are trusting the Lord for Peter. We know God has Peter right where he wants him. And it's an interesting observation because I think sometimes we who are in the church see the faith of believers as they go through exceedingly painful trials, and we fail to realize that they're only going through those trials and they're only exhibiting the faith that they are because on the other side, God is sustaining them and supernaturally sustaining them with the same faith with which he called them to his son. Now, as I reflect on my friend's response to his son's suffering, and we come this morning to consider Abraham's response to God's call to offer up his only beloved son, it's important for us to understand that the life of faith oftentimes is evidenced the most when God puts his finger on the most valuable thing in our lives. You know, the Lord Jesus, on numerous occasions, called people away from what they, what they treasured the most, what they loved the most. It is well known in the missionary world that you oftentimes don't talk to missionaries about how their family's doing. Um, And it is well known and well observed in the world in which we live that many times people will not come to Jesus Christ because they're not willing, they're not willing to love him more than they love their wives or their husbands or their parents or their children. Jesus says in that very searching call, whoever loves wife or mother or father or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That that's oftentimes one of the great hindrances. When God afflicts someone's beloved child, you oftentimes see the response is very different than that of my friend. There is anger, there is hatred, there is vitriolic responses showing that that person has not trusted the Lord has made an idol out of those that God has put around them. Now, you may say, that sounds harsh. But the reality is Jesus calls every single person that he calls to himself to let go of everything else and to trust him. The only way you'll ever go to heaven is if you let go of everything else and trust Jesus Christ. Now, there are millions of people that profess faith in Jesus. But at the end of the day, the Bible is very clear that those who have saving faith, who have a living faith, are those that demonstrate by their lives and by the obedience that they render to God in the midst of difficulties and trials and challenges that they indeed are trusting the Savior, that their hope is to be with the Savior, that they are trusting the God of promise. Now, Abraham has been through all kinds of trials. Abraham has seen 30 years of trials. I was reflecting on this this week, and I thought, you know, here's the example of faith. So if if somebody asked you, what does it look like to be a man or a woman of faith? What, what, give me an example of somebody who lived a life of faith. God says, here's Abraham. And Abraham's entire 30-year pilgrimage, from when he's called at 70 to when he offers up Isaac at 100, 
is a life of trial and difficulty, not knowing where he's going, not having any real tangible sense that God is indeed doing all that God has promised he's going to do. God has said, I am going to make you great. I am going to make you greater than all the people of the earth. I am going to make your name great. I'm going to give you an inheritance. All the nations are going to be blessed in you. And Abraham doesn't see any of that. He doesn't see any of it. And he has 30 years of trial, whether it is the famine that initially strikes after God calls him away from his family. Isn't it interesting that the beginning of Abraham's call and here at the end of Abraham's life at the climax, he is called to let go of what he loves the most and to follow the God of promise. At the beginning, leave your father's house. Leave the security of the land you're in, the security of the inheritance that your father would have given you. Leave the comfort of everything that you know socially and that you feel safe with. Leave your family and follow me where you don't know that you're going, but follow me because I am going to bless you. And the end here, this last great trial, is God having given the initial fulfillment and saying, here is the son of promise. Here's the one from whom the redeemer is going to come. Here's the one in whom the nations are going to be blessed. Here's the one in whom all of my promises are going to be filled. Now offer him up. Give him back to me. Offer him on the altar. Abraham's entire life is one of trial. He goes through the famines. He goes through the tension with Lot. He goes through the conflict with the kings in chapter 14 and, and delivering Lot out of Sodom after the kings are taken captive and Lot is taken captive. He goes through the travail of seeing Lot fall under the potential judgment of God in Sodom. At every step of the way, Abraham has seen trial. The last step, the last trial Abraham has been engaged in is that trial where he had to send away Ishmael, that painful, difficult trial in the last chapter where God has said, send away the, the son of the bondwoman, send away the son that you love, because Abraham was distraught over it. It was very difficult. It was very painful for him to do so. But God said that this son will not be heir with Isaac, the son of promise. Now, you might think, well, this is cruel. Why is God doing this? The first thing that we're going to see this morning is the trials of faith. Why, why all the trials of faith? And I want to say this morning very definitively that God is not doing this to prove anything to himself about Abraham. God doesn't need to prove anything to himself. He doesn't need Abraham to prove anything to him. Nowhere in the Bible, very interesting, nowhere in the Bible does God ever say, Walk by faith, obey in the midst of difficulties, and show me, show me that you really have faith. God gave Abraham the faith. God, God gave Abraham the faith that, that enabled Abraham to leave his father's house at the beginning of this pilgrimage in Genesis 12. God is essentially saying to Abraham, I am going to put this trial and this challenge in your life so that you will see that the same faith with which I called you, the same faith by which I drew you out and drew you to myself, I am going to sustain you in the midst of the most difficult trial that you could ever imagine. And God is saying secondarily, as James tells us in James chapter 2, that a true believer evidences the faith in Christ that they profess to have by evidencing it in the midst of trials and difficulties to a watching world, to the church, to a watching world. James will say, I'll show you my faith by my obedience. You show me your faith by not obeying. You can't do that. You can't evidence to a world around you that this is indeed 
who this person says that they are. And so God is putting these trials in Abraham's life as an example of God both giving faith, sustaining faith, and that faith coming out as a witness and an evidence to the goodness of the God of promise. Now, God is essentially also teaching Abraham that Abraham can learn to trust God even when he doesn't understand him. Now, that is so hard to get. That's so hard. Multitudes have turned away from their professions of faith in Christ. Multitudes. Because they don't understand why things are going on in their life the way they are. And essentially, they're saying, I can't trust a God I can't understand. I'm not going to trust the true and living God who claims to be the true and living God. I'm not going to trust him when I can't understand exactly why he's doing what he's doing. I have a friend who said a number of years ago, and I found it very helpful, that when we are going through the trials of life and the challenges, we, we ought not ask the question so much, why is God putting this in my life, but how can I learn to trust the God who is sovereign over these trials? Even when they seem to run contrary to everything else that he's revealed in his word, because God has revealed to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Nobody's going to be blessed like you. You're going to be the father of the nations, the father of all those who have faith. You and Sarah are going to be the the patriarchal example of a believer throughout all of human history. Now go kill Isaac. And that, and it's going to be in Isaac that the nations are going to be blessed. Now, Go and offer him on the altar to me. And so you can see that God is teaching Abraham in the trial that Abraham can learn to trust God. And Abraham did learn to trust God, even when he can't understand why God's calling him to do what he's calling him to do. Now, I think it's, it's obviously helpful for us to realize that God is not going to ask us, as he never asked anyone other than Abraham, to offer our children as a sacrifice really and truly and literally to him. God never asked for a human sacrifice ever of anyone else in all of redemptive history until he asks it of his son, the son of Abraham, the greater Isaac. But the question is, when God calls me to obey, when God calls me to walk in uprightness, when God calls me to model Um, godly responses, when God calls me to put sin to death, when God calls me to put anger to death, when God calls me to put lust to death, when God calls me to avoid um, all sorts of things that God calls us to avoid and commands us to avoid, when it cuts across the very fabric of me feeling like God wants me to be happy and and my own self-interpretation of happiness and blessing, that's when the rubber meets the road in our lives. When I, when I am called, very interesting, when James uses the idea of Abraham being tested and the idea of Abraham exhibiting that he really had saving faith by offering Isaac up, James is writing that in a context of um, trials and afflictions of uh, those in the church who are being oppressed, um, those, the poor in the church who are being oppressed by the rich, and those, those socioeconomic distinctions. And one of the things that James does, very interesting to me, he doesn't say, well, if you really had faith in Jesus, you would offer your child on the altar. He says, if you really have faith in Jesus, you wouldn't show partiality. Very interesting, isn't it? There's, there's one thing, don't show partiality. How do I know if somebody has faith in Jesus? They don't show partiality to others because of socioeconomic status. It's the book of James. 
How do I know that I have faith in Jesus? Because I, I, don't, um, I don't get sinfully angry in the midst of the trials and afflictions. I learn to receive from the Lord's hands the trials knowing that faith produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and everything else that James says. And so you see the way that this comes down into the very mundane trials of life in a congregation. How does the great example of Abraham being tested to offer up Isaac affect me? It affects me in every way, at every point. It comes down to the very fabric of my relationships with others in the church. It comes into the very fabric of the relationship I have with my wife in the home, with my children, in the workplace, in every sphere of life. It comes down with how will I respond to the Lord's call to walk in obedience by faith even when it cuts across everything that I think I deserve as one who God has said will be blessed by trusting me. Now, secondly, we want to see this morning the response of faith. Notice that we're told a great deal. God comes, he, he tests Abraham, he says, uh, Abraham, Abraham responds, here I am. The Lord says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Now, to understand the heightened sense of the greatness of Abraham's response of faith, we have to understand that Moses is strategically using the phraseology that he's using in describing Isaac. He says, the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take your son. Remember, Abraham had had two sons. Now he has one son. Take your son, the one that you love. Take Isaac and go and offer him. Now, I think if we were Abraham, if we could transport ourselves back and we were in that place, we would say, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. You've taken Ishmael from me. You've taken everything else from me. You've pulled me out of my family's house. You've pulled me away from all the security, all the comfort, all the safety, everything that I knew, everything familiar to me, and now you're asking me to give up the last thing that I have, basically. The, The only thing I have left that I cherish. And notice how Abraham responds. Notice this, verse three, Abraham rose early in the morning. Now that is not a wasted detail. The Lord is teaching us that Abraham acted swiftly. He acted quickly. He probably laid awake all night wondering over this. He probably didn't sleep much that night. He got up early in the morning. He went and he cut the wood. He got everything ready. He got his servants. He got Isaac. And he said, come, we're going to go obey the Lord. It is the single most remarkable act of faith by a fallen individual in human history. He obeyed God when he didn't understand God. He obeyed by faith. Now, there are several things that we can glean because the question is how? How how could Abraham go forward with this? How could Abraham take his only begotten beloved son and put him on the altar to slay him with his own hand? How could he do that? And there are details in the text. Notice that as Abraham goes, he takes the wood of the burnt offering. He goes with the, um, with the servants. And notice, notice verse 5. This is supremely important because if we're ever to learn what it is to obey God by faith, we have got to get this. 
If we miss this, we miss everything. How does Abraham go through with this? By the way, Abraham is vastly smarter than us, richer than most of us, and older than all of us. He's 100. He's more experienced. He's not stupid. He's 100. He's rich. And he knows a lot more than us. He's spoken directly and audibly to God. We, ha- we do not hear God's voice audibly. We hear it in the scriptures. But God has spoken directly to Abraham. Abraham is not stupid. Abraham goes forward. How does Abraham obey? Notice the verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come to you again. There's two things. Abraham is more intent on worshiping God than holding on to his most prized relationship. Um, We see this, don't we, in Job. God takes everything from Job. Takes his possessions, takes his servants, takes his children, takes his health, gives Satan that delegated, afflicting power over, over Job. And what does Job do? He falls down and he worships. And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Abraham is the exact same spirit of faith as Job. He worshiped. The only thing that gets us through the trials and the challenges. I'll never forget, uh, Ligon Duncan preached 11 or 12 years ago. I heard him preach a sermon on Ephesians 1, and he was speaking about Paul's great doxology, where he breaks out and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he's talking about that great doxological prayer, that great praise to God, and And he told a story about a woman who had lost a child in infancy. And he had, as he told the story, talked about what 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 was was that were there things that really helped her get through that unbelievably painful experience. And she said to him, I'll never forget this. If I had not been in the habit of praising God now, I never would have been able to do it then. I'll never forget that. If I had not, if we are not in the habit of worshiping God now, in the good times, we're never going to be able to get through the trials. It's just, that's a fact. If, if we are not saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, if we are not, if we are not worshiping him with his people regularly, if we are not praising him for all that he does, all the bounty, all the care and the trials and the difficulties, all the opportunities to trust him when we don't understand him, if we're not worshiping him, then we're not going to do it when the trials come. See, Abraham is a man who is a worshiper. Abraham has been worshiping God for 30 years. He has been acknowledging his need for a savior. He has been acknowledging that God is to be worshiped. Everywhere along the way in his travels, Abraham is stopping, sacrificing, and worshiping. So when God says, Abraham, offer your son, he says to the servants, we're going to go and worship. We're going to worship God. And then notice, he says to them, and then we will return again. Now, you might miss that little detail. You might say, well, why didn't he say, I will return again? Because Abraham knows that God's being asking him to offer up his son. Now, what helps us is to realize that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, when he reflects on that little tiny passing statement, notice that, we will go, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and 
We will come back to you again. We will come back from worshiping. The writer of Hebrews says that Abraham did something that enabled him to go through the trial. Here's the secret. Abraham, the writer of Hebrews says, reasoned. He had a logical faith. He reasoned that God had promised that the nations would be blessed in Isaac. So he knew that. He was assured of that. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 tells us that God swore by an oath that he would bless the nations through the Redeemer, the son of Abraham, and that he confirmed it by an oath. He swore by himself. He confirmed it by an oath so that by two immutable things, unchangeable things, God's God's promise and his swearing it and pledging it by his own self-mutilation, if he didn't fulfill it, the writer of Hebrews says God promised those things, and by those two things, we have strong confidence. So Abraham knew God has promised God is going to make good on his promise. You will never get through the trials of life if you don't have that first step. God's covenantal promises are everything. They are the anchor for the souls of his people. God has said he will do this. God has said he will forgive my sins in Jesus. God has said he will raise me up on the last day. Jesus has said all that the Father has given will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. God has said, Christ has promised, I hold on to that promise. My life may be falling apart by human standards and may look very contrary to that promise. But we first and foremost conclude that God's promises are absolutely sure and certain. And then the writer of Hebrews says, he concluded that God would raise Isaac from the dead. So, somewhere in those words in verse 5, the writer of Hebrews understands that Abraham's thinking that enabled him to get through this, that enabled him to worship God at that moment and to obey God by faith, was that Abraham took the promises of God and thought, well, the God who has promised, who has promised to absolutely fulfill everything that he said and bless the nations in Isaac, in my son, in my offspring, must have a plan of raising him from the dead if I go through with offering him up. Abraham anticipated the resurrection of Isaac. The writer of Hebrews actually will tell us, even though God stops Abraham from offering up Isaac, uh, the writer of Hebrews will say, uh, from the dead, Abraham figuratively received Isaac back. He witnessed a death and resurrection. That's, that's what's going on on Moriah. On Mount Moriah, Abraham is witnessing a death and a resurrection. And he is concluding that, that all the promises of God are so absolutely sure that God is going to raise this boy up again. We're going to come down the mountain and we're going to see God fulfill these promises. That, that's what saving faith looks like. Saving faith enables us to take the loss, to go through the trials, to go through all the difficulties that seem to cut across all of our expectations and hope. And it says, God has promised to do in Jesus Christ everything he's promised. He's promised to give me everlasting life. He's promised to justify me. He's promised to bring me to himself. He's promised to pour out the riches of his grace and his kindness in Jesus Christ on me for all of eternity. And even if my life is bitter and hard here, by the way, this is real Christianity. This is real Christianity. This is not the fluff, trite, make-you-feel-good Christianity. This is real. This is, this is 
holding on for life Christianity. And, and we can be sure that God has promised in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, that he is going to do everything necessary. Now, we want to look thirdly at the provision, the provision of faith. Notice that as Abraham goes, and, and there's that, that stark imagery of placing the wood on Isaac, and they march up the mountain together. They go up Moriah, and, and Abraham is there putting his own son on the altar and tying him to the altar and preparing to put a dagger into the heart of his son. And at that moment, when his son and he are walking up the mountain, and, and Isaac says to Abraham, my father, I see the wood, I see the fire. And, eight, and Isaac may be six, seven years old. We don't know. He's a boy. Dad, there's wood, there's fire. Where's the, where's the sacrifice? Abraham's obviously kept back from Isaac at that moment. Um, what God has commanded him. And Abraham says to Isaac, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. You see, Abraham is looking expectantly beyond what's going on at that moment on Moriah, and he's recognizing that the sacrifice that God has appointed is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it's, it's interesting. The Bible, the uh, storyline of Scripture really moves from here, even though the saints were already sacrificing before this expectantly, it really moves from Abraham saying God will provide for himself a lamb all the way through the Old Testament sacrificial system. Very interesting. All those lambs, those, those spotless lambs that were offered up in the temple throughout Israel's history in the Old Covenant era were offered on Mount Moriah where the temple was built. The temple was built by Solomon in the very place where Abraham offered up Isaac. There's even an intimation. Notice this. When Abraham names the, the place where he, he has gone to offer up, and he sees that ram caught in the thicket, a picture of the Son of God who wears the crown of thorns, who is himself caught in the thicket of sin and, and caught in the, the snare of the sins of his people. Thorns, the symbol of sin and fallenness in Genesis. And, and as Abraham is in that place and God has provided this ram, Abraham names that place, look very carefully, he names that place, the Lord will provide, and then notice what Moses says. Remember, Moses is writing this 400 years after Abraham does this. So Abraham names the place, the Lord will provide, and then Moses writes about it 400 years later, and Moses says, as it is called to this day, notice this, on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What's going on there? Moses is saying that Abraham in faith acknowledged that God would provide a sacrificial lamb who would take away the sins of his people. And Moses is acknowledging that 400 years later, God had still not yet brought the Redeemer who would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we go through the pages of the scriptures and as you hear about that Lamb and we come to Isaiah and Isaiah tells us about the suffering servant and in Isaiah 53 he says he will be led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, he will not open his mouth. Speaking about Jesus on trial before Pilate as Isaiah foresees the suffering servant who is that Lamb led to the slaughter. 
And then as the storyline continues, as God continues his revelation, and John the Baptist, the precursor of the Redeemer, comes, and he stands, and it's as if, you get this sense, it's as if what Abraham has spoken here on Mount Moriah, my son, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb, is finally and ultimately fulfilled when John the Baptist stands and points at Jesus, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The entirety of redemptive history is met in that idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God, without blemish, without spot. Peter will tell us, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the ages for our glory, that everything God was doing was intimating that he would himself provide the sacrifice. You know, I think that when, and by the way, there's so much here. I mean, Isaac's a type of Christ. Isaac carries the wood. Jesus carries the cross. Isaac is set on the altar. Jesus is placed on the cross by his father. The father gives the son. When the apostle Paul writes those great words in Romans 8, when he says, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things. It is without a doubt that the apostle sees in the account of Abraham and Isaac that here Abraham stands as a type of God the Father, willing to offer his son, and though God stops him, and though God gives Isaac back to him, Paul is saying God the Father did not spare his son. He didn't. There was no angel from heaven when Jesus was on the cross. There was no, there was no messenger of Yahweh saying, no, do not let the wrath of God fall on the sun. In fact, the sun was darkened, the, the sky was darkened, the earth trembled and quaked, and the father said, I will give my son for the redemption of my people. I have provided the lamb. The entirety of the biblical narrative is moving to God saying, here is the lamb, here is the sacrifice appointed, here is the one that will stand in the place of his people. Um, I think as we consider all the things going on in Genesis 22, and then obviously as it moves out, one of the things that we need to recognize is that while God calls us to exhibit saving faith by living a life of obedience, there is one who has done everything for us. There is one who has been perfectly obedient for us. There is one who has placed himself on the altar. This great writer, um, R.A. Finlayson, we're about to come to the Lord's Supper, and so this is very appropriate. R.A. Finlayson says that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he, he ate that Passover with his disciples. And the Passover lamb pointed to him. He is the lamb. And, and you have in the account in, in Luke 22, they, they finish the Passover, and then Jesus institutes the supper. And Finlayson says, and this is just amazing imagery, he says, Jesus, in essence, sweeps away the Passover meal, and he places himself on the table. He puts himself on the altar. He says, I'm the sacrifice. I'm the lamb. My body is for you. My blood is for you. God has provided for himself the lamb. Now, we are called to respond this morning by acknowledging that God has provided the lamb. 
That is foundational to everything. Foundational to you making it through the trials of life is acknowledging God has provided for me a sacrifice. God has atoned for my sins. God has provided a spotless lamb for my iniquity. God has given himself for me. God has taken the wrath I deserve on himself. God has then been risen from the dead in the resurrection of Jesus. He has secured all the promises. The nations are blessed. If you're in Jesus, you're blessed, just like Abraham, with the blessing of Abraham. God continues to sustain us by reminding us that he placed himself on the altar for us so that when we go through the trials, we can say, if God has not spared his son, I can certainly go through even, dare I say it, the loss of my own child. Many believers have lost children and yet have done exactly what my friend is doing, praising God for his faithfulness, worshiping God in the midst of affliction and trial. And the reason my friend can do what he does is because he believes that God has provided a lamb in his place on the altar for his sins. That's, by the way, this is the essence of Christianity. This is the very essence of Christianity. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge how weak we are, how weak our faith is, how much unbelief is often mixed, and yet we are thankful for the ways in which you strengthen our faith by the word. We thank you, Father, that you did not spare your own son, your only begotten, eternally beloved son, but you gave him up for us all. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you willingly laid your life down, that you placed yourself on the altar of the cross, that you bore the wrath that we deserve, that you stood in our place, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might have an atoning sacrifice. Our Father, we thank you that you sustain us by those truths. We pray that you would establish us by your grace this morning in the knowledge of the provision of the offering of your Son for our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name.